I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 299. And today in the show, we're joined by Adam Hayes to dive deep into his tactics for consistently locating the best buck in the neighborhood. And welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today I'm joined by Adam Hayes. And we're focusing specifically on the topic of finding the best buck in your area. And Adam seemed like the guy to talk about this topic with because he does that year after year after year. Now, shooting a big buck is not all that hunting is all about. It's not for everyone. It's not something you got to do. But for some folks, those who seek the greatest deer hunting challenge possible, the goal of finding and hunting the biggest and oldest buck in your neck of the woods is this this task, this mission that can be incredibly rewarding and frustrating. But somehow, Adam seems to do it with ease. Now, you might be familiar with Adam from his appearances in various magazines or his show, Team 200, or from the fact that he's pretty widely known as one of the few people out there who have killed four free-range whitetail bucks that eclipse the magic 200-inch mark. So needless to say, he's got a lot of experience finding and targeting bruiser whitetails. And today, I picked his brain for every single idea, tip, and tactic I could possibly find that he has for how to find those kinds of deer, how to locate the best buck in whatever area you might be in, we discuss that and we break it down how to do it in the winter, in the summer, and in the season. So without further ado, let's take a really quick break and then we'll get to my chat with Adam Hayes. And hey, one more quick announcement for all of you guys out there. If you are into whitetail deer hunting, which if you're listening to this podcast, you sure ought to be. Otherwise, you're in for a boring conversation. If you're into whitetails, we are just launching a new newsletter from Meat Eater that is all focused on our latest and greatest whitetail hunting content. It's a spot you can sign up and get all of our whitetail stuff sent to your inbox every single week. It's called Whitetail Weekly. If you just go to TheMeatEater.com, you'll see a little pop-up that's going to show you how you can just enter your email address enter to get that. You're going to see the new Wired on podcast show up there. 
You're going to see our new Fresh radio podcast. You're going to see our new video series we just launched called How to Kill a Buck. Have a whole other video series coming very soon that's whitetail focused and a whole bunch of articles focused on our favorite big game species, the whitetail deer. Content for me, Spencer Newharth, Tony Peterson, Pat Durkin, and all sorts of other folks that love whitetails just like you and I. So head on over to TheMediator.com and sign up for the Whitetail Weekly Newsletter. All right, with me now on the line is Adam Hayes. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Yeah, I just was looking back on the archives to see when we had you on last. And this is crazy to me, but it was four years ago that we did that episode. It does not seem like it's been that long at all. Time flies when you're having fun. I know. That is... uh, that is the truth. So I'm glad uh, glad we're finally circling back again. And speaking of having fun, uh, are you having a good late summer, early fall period? Are you getting excited for the season to kick off here soon? Yeah, I am getting excited. Uh, this summer just flew by and got some good deer on camera, so I'm anxious to get after them. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And uh, speaking of those good deer on camera, that kind of ties into the main – the main focus area I thought we could try to dive into today. You know, I know last time we chatted, it was kind of a holistic view of, of everything you're doing to target big old bucks. And today I thought we can narrow in to one slice of that, which you seem to be particularly good at, which is locating the best buck in the neighborhood, like finding that very biggest, oldest buck in whatever neck of the woods it is that you're in. And then you just zero in on that deer and, and you seems to be that you're getting within range of that deer more often than than most other people out there. So I thought we could dive into all facets of that. So everything from, you know, preseason work and scouting all the way to what you're doing in season, everything from actual hunting to trail cameras to whatever else it might be. Um, but I got to ask, you alluded to it. You've got a couple good bucks on camera. Do you have a couple of these bucks in your sights already that you think are going to be the, the target for this year yet? Yeah, I've got a couple uh, target bucks. I have not seen a deer that I thought was pushing 200 inches this year, but one deer in particular I've been chasing for four years at home and uh big deer over in Illinois I've been after for a couple of years. So it's what it's all about with me. I'd rather be chasing a specific animal than just out there deer hunting. That's really what drives me these days is, um, you know, having some history on a deer and trying to figure it out and playing that game with them as yeah. opposed to just sitting there hoping a big one's going to show up. Yeah, I hear you. I'm, I'm right there too. So how does that process start for you? You know, let's say the 2018 season ended, 2019 has started. When, when you went into this year, let's let's look at this year as a perfect example. How did the process start for you as far as trying to either relocate a buck you knew from past years or find whatever that buck will be, a new buck might be this year? When did that start? What's it start looking like? Is it is it right away in the postseason or do you wait till the summer? How do you start locating that deer? It's really important to get out in the woods before things start greening up. I mean, a lot of guys get out shed hunting <clears throat> And um, I do shed hunt. I'm really looking for, you know, antlers off specific animals, though, as opposed to just out combing the woods looking for looking for a horn here or there. But it's a great time to get out and really 
you know, everything's kind of really laid out for you. Um, as far as the previous season, you know, obviously rubs, trails, scrapes, that sort of thing. But the main thing I look for late season like that when I'm after a specific buck is are the core areas, you know, areas where those deer spend the majority of their time in October, especially, you know, thick, thick bedding areas that are going to have concentrations of large rubs because, you know, getting after a specific deer, excuse me, I like to get after them in October, obviously before the rut when they're still pretty predictable and on a, on a set pattern doing pretty much the same thing every day, but you've got to know, you know, right where those deer are bedding and um, food sources are pretty obvious, but you know, early season, they're doing the same thing every day. <clears throat> and some guys struggle with killing deer then like during the October lull, <clears throat> because those deer are doing it the same thing, but in such a small area. And it's tough to get into those spots without tipping them off. You usually get one crack at them and then it's game over or things get a lot tougher. So that's really what I focus on that time of the year is finding those core areas where those big deer are bedding early season. They're doing a lot of rubs and everything's pretty much right there laid out for you to find um, late season. So, so what, you know, on a, let's say it's a property that, you know, you've hunted in the past, there's a buck that you think made it to the next year. Now you're out there in January or February or March, whatever it is. And you're looking for these core areas once you find a spot you think is his core area or maybe in the past like you you've hypothesized that hey i think this buck is hanging out in this little zone what are you really trying to do then at that point if you know that one of these pockets is one of his little core bedding areas do you go in there and try to actually take it even further and say okay i know this is a zone this five acres or 15 acres or whatever seems to be his core. Do you go in there and try to precisely pick? I bet you he beds in this exact spot some days. I bet you he beds in this exact spot some days. Or do you try to find exactly the routes you think that deer is coming in? Or what are you actually doing when you're there on March 1st looking at the core area? Well, it's really all the above. I mean, you got to have a really good idea where he's bedding at. <clears throat> and it's really a matter of almost, you know, thinking like the deer so if you know where he's bedding, you know where the food sources are, are and where he's going to want to go, number one, <clears throat> what travel routes is he going to take to get there? And probably the most important is what kind of wind is he going to need to feel safe enough to get up and move during daylight to get there? Because my whole regimen is all about finding a weak spot somewhere on that travel pattern where you can get within bow range of him while he's using the wind to his advantage because, you know, a five, six, seven-year-old buck in October is probably just going to lay there in his bed until dark unless he's got a few things in his favor, particularly a, a good wind, you know, weather influences mature deer to move, and, and obviously the moon, too. I'm a big follower on the moon. And, you know, when you can line a few of those things up, it's uh, that's when you catch those big deer making mistakes. But, you know, it's really about just, like I said, trying to think, uh, think like the deer. What's gonna, what's it gonna take for that deer to feel comfortable to get up and move and finding, you know, an ambush spot along there while he's using the wind to his advantage. And those spots are tough to find. You know, it's hard enough to beat a big buck's nose, let alone giving him the wind. You know, oh, but yeah. that was really what changed my success on big deer was when I quit hunting 
wins that were good for me and started hunting a win good for the animal I was after. So is it fair to say that you are looking at a property and you're kind of finding these core areas and those core areas kind of become like a hub on a wheel and then you're then trying to guess where are the spokes coming off of the wheel that are these travel routes out. So do you end up having different places you hunt that have then these different little wheels? You've got a core area here and a couple spokes coming out and then you've got another core area somewhere else. Maybe it's a different buck and a few spokes. Is that kind of what your maps in your head look like when you're thinking about breaking down these properties? Yeah, I mean, because they're not going to be heading to the exact same place every day. I mean, they're pretty consistent early season, but, you know, food sources change almost daily in October, you know, with crops, you know, the soybeans change from, you know, being green to drying up and they switch over to the acorns when they're dropping. And if a cornfield comes down, you know, they, they jump on that right away. So, I mean, stuff's changing nonstop. So there's going to be multiple routes a big deer can take so that's where your you know your in season scouting comes into play a lot i probably scout more than i hunt during season also because you got to be on the freshest sign you know there's that stuff's changing like i said almost on a daily basis and you got to stay on top of that stuff but then then again that also causes its own set of problems and issues trying to get in and keep an eye on fresh sign and how things are changing without disturbing the deer. So you really got to have an intimate knowledge of where that deer is bedding at, where you think he's going to go as the crops and food food sources change. And I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a combination of a lot of things that go into play. It's a huge puzzle. It's a huge puzzle. Now, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a strategic nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what makes it fun, right? Oh, yeah. So I, I do want to talk about all that in-season stuff for sure. But before we get to that, one more question on the on this, you know, winter scouting of these, starting at these core areas, finding them the spokes along the way. But what if it's a new property and you don't know where, you know, where these certain bucks are typically spending their time? So if you're brand new on a spot and you're now walking around and you're trying to determine where is this best buck living? You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, there's certain places I think the buck should bed, like there'll be good thick cover. And then, so if you just go to the good thick cover and you say, okay, this has got to be his core area. This has got to be his bedding area because it's good thick cover. Um, But, you know, maybe there's four bucks living around there and one of them maybe is using that one. And is that the best one? Is that the oldest buck? Is that the biggest buck? Like, How do you actually go about determining where the king of the hill is living? Is it just by rub size or is it a concentration or is it, I mean, how do you go about and actually say, okay, this little area here, this is the big boy, I think, or this is where he's spending the most time. How do you actually make that qualification? I probably rely on concentrations of big rubs more than anything. Um, but you know, on any given property, there can be, you know, multiple bucks in multiple areas that they use. So unless you actually witness firsthand, you know, a deer making rub, it's hard to know for sure. But, um, you know, I, I use a lot of mineral sites in those locations year round to keep tabs on the bucks and to know which areas that they're using. I love to set my mineral sites right on the edge of those core areas where, you know, when a, whether a buck's traveling um, through an area or, you know, going from his summer pattern to his, back to his core area when he sheds his velvet, 
typically they'll, you know, they'll hit those mineral sites and I'll know when they're there. And, um, you know, it's, it's a good idea to put them right on the edge where you can get in and get out without disturbing those areas. But, um, that's a great way to keep tabs on them to know which deer are living where, you know, and, and you just, you got to cover on a new farm. You got to cover every stitch of cover that's available. Cause you know, a big deer could be using a typical, you know, flat in the middle of the woods as his core area, or he could be using a little tiny thicket right up next to the road. I mean, you just never know where these big deer have little pockets that they've found where they've learned to survive. No, an, an older guy I know that's hunted longer than I've been, been alive told me one time that if you've gone more than a hundred yards from your truck, you probably went too far. <laughs> so I don't, I don't skip any patch of cover when it comes to figuring out, you know, where these big deer are hiding at. And, and on, especially on a new piece, you just got to cover everything that's available to you and what you got permission on because you don't want to miss anything. Yeah. What about scrapes? Um, you know, big hub tile hub type scrapes. Some people like to really focus on those scrapes that are back in the cover and they use that to kind of focus in. Do you pay attention to that sign at all when doing this early, you know, postseason type stuff in the winter still? Or is it just rubs and, and other sign like that? No, I pay a lot of attention to them. It seems like the bigger, larger breeding scrapes, so that's you know, those are the ones that you're going to want to pay attention to in November. And I normally don't find those on those isolated, you know, buck travel patterns. You know, those are more typical for, you know, all your does and all your bucks are hitting them in a real common area, which is where you want to be in November. But when I'm after a specific buck, I like to try to kill them in October. And that's typically not the kind of place we're going to find them. But you definitely want to note those areas. Um, you know, for November action, that's for sure. Okay, that makes sense. So let's move the clock forward a little bit. Now it's the summer, it's July or August, and you kind of made a, you made a comment a second ago that makes me curious about what you think about summer scouting because you said something about how these bucks move from their summer patterns to their fall patterns. So, right, a lot of us talk about the fact that you're going to have these deer in one place in the summer and then some significant portion typically shift their range to a degree once velvet comes off. So do you, how do you look at your summer scouting, your summer trail camera pictures, your summer bean field scouting when you know that a lot of those deer are going to be somewhere different in a few weeks? Well, it's just something you got to keep in the back of your mind. And that's when that late season scouting comes into play because these mature deer are are usually going to be, located next to a a preferred food source in the summer whether it's you know a a really green soybean field alfalfa whatever the case is and who knows why they pick a specific field but you know i've seen them here in ohio where deer don't travel a lot um relocate a mile or two miles away in the summer and then you know they're out there like clockwork all summer long every night and then all of a sudden they vanish yeah and that's where a lot of guys have problems with them they don't know you know what happened and where they went and a lot of those books when they shed their velvet they automatically relocate back to those core areas that i try to find late season but um you know the only thing hunt the only thing definite about hunting big deer is nothing's ever definite you know some of those big bucks might stay right on that food source right in through october if the beans were planted late 
and they're still green, they could stay there. I've seen that happen before. If there's a good oak drop in the area, they could stay right there or relocate, you know, to a different spot where they're dropping. But um, typically September, you know, when they shed, there's a lot of stuff changing and, you know, a big deer, big deer could stay right where he's at or he could completely vanish and relocate. But nine times out of 10, when they do that, they're going back to that safety area. You know, they know what's going on. They know what's coming and things are changing and it's time to get reclusive again. And that's normally where they end up. Yeah. And that's when those mineral sites come into play and having a camera on them, monitoring them. So you, so I know when they, you know, when they vanish from that southern pattern, they'll usually show up on those mineral sites. Yeah, so tell, tell me a little more about your mineral site trail camera process. So you're putting these spots on the edge of the core area. When you say the edge of it, I mean, are you saying it's on the edge of a field so you can drive right up to it? Or are you actually back in the timber, but you're on the edge of the transition between like a staging area and the good thick cover? Like how, how close to the edge are you really? When I say edge, I'm talking about somewhere where I can get in and out and check it without disturbing the the deer that I'm watching, but close enough to him that he's going to find it, and it's going to have to be on his travel pattern. You know, when he comes through that area, they just, I don't know, it seems like more and more these days of finding these big mature bucks, they just don't seem to venture off their set patterns, you know can go out of their way to find stuff so you've really got to be either right on it or close to it for them to to find it or to pay attention to it or to hit it consistently so as close as you can be to their core area um on the edge so you're not disturbing anything if you have to go in and replenish it or change batteries on your camera or whatever and 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 a lot of times i hunt really close to them too so you know i don't want to go busting through the brush to get into a tree stand i like I love just being able to slip right just inside the cover, not disturb anything, jump up in a stand if if a big deer, you know, starting to hit a mineral, which they don't a lot of times in October. But, um, you know, if he's making a mistake, you got to be able to slide in there undisturbed and take a crack at him. So, Yeah. So what's your trail camera set up over those? I mean, I'm curious, like, do you – put them way high in a tree and aim it down because you're worried about the buck spooking through the camera or do you just place a camera at eye level? Uh, I'm curious what your whole detailed setup for those cameras, those like stationary cameras where they're over a mineral site or something like that. Well, most of those are there year round. So the deer get used to them and I haven't had a need to, you know, hang them 10 foot up in a tree or anything like that. I've not noticed where they'd really disturb the deer I'm after. And like I said, because they're in there all year, they get used to them. So just a typical setup. Okay. And are you running uh, cell cams nowadays? Do you run just traditional cameras? And, and if so, how often are you going in there to check them at this point in the year at least? When I'm in close to a core area like that, yeah, I use the cell camera so I don't have to go in there and check them. I probably run about 15 of those and then everywhere else is just standard cameras that I bounce around from spot to spot. But those cell cameras are worth their weight in gold, especially during season. So any of my, you know, kill spots that I'm actually hunting and think that's where I need to be, you know, I'll definitely have a cell camera in there. So, okay. 
That makes a lot of sense. So let's say we're we're in that late summer time period or early fall. Like right now, it's September, um, early September. You're waiting to get some of these bucks on your camera, on your trail cameras. Let's say you get a ping, you look at your phone, it's September 6th, and here's the big shooter buck that you've been hoping to see all year. He's on camera just outside of one of these core areas. At that point, do you just let it be and keep your cameras all where they were at? because you want to keep you know track of what other deer might be around? Or do you go and grab some of your other cameras that were elsewhere and then zero in on this spot now that you know your target buck's in? Yeah, it's too late in the game to make a lot of changes right now. So the less pressure, the better. You know, it's all about the element of surprise and, and going in the, the, the first time. And I mean, a, a deer that survived for five or six seasons, you just can't, you just can't make any mistakes. Not early season. And like I said, this time of the year, they're doing pretty much the same thing every day, but they're doing it in a really small area. And if he's in there and he catch you moving during daylight, don't change any, I don't change anything. I mean, unless something absolutely has to be changed, the key, I just, I want to stay out of that area let him feel as comfortable as he possibly can, and then wait till I stack the deck in my favor with everything possible to get him to move during daylight as soon as I can slide in and take a chance in killing him. Because if I took the 10 biggest deer I've killed, I bet you nine of them were killed the first time I went in. You know, I think a lot of guys struggle with the fact that it's hunting season. I got to be hunting, which is understandable if, if a guy can only hunt, you know, a couple of days a week or weekends or whatever, you know, guys want to be out there hunting, but I don't go through all the work and scouting and effort to go in before everything's lined up and take a chance on blowing them out. Cause like I said, it gets tougher each time you go in there and don't get it done. So you really got to be patient and just wait for everything to line up before I even take a chance on going in and you know, nine times out of 10, it works. If you can do that, if, if you can stay out of your area till everything lines up. So, so before we get into the season, um, one other thing I know we talked about this a little bit when we chatted last, which was this idea that sometimes a lot of folks will just focus on hunting whatever bucks they have on their property that they've always hunted or whatever, but that you sometimes will actually go out there in the summer or off season or whatever it is and seek out these top tier bucks, glassing fields and looking all around. And then when you see a buck that you really want to target, then you go about trying to get permission to hunt there or whatever it takes to be able to hunt there. Um, so when, I guess question number one is, do you still do that? Question number two is, if so, do you do that in the summer or do you wait till early September so that you know you're in the spot that buck's going to be during the fall? That's really good to be the toughest part of the game anymore is finding quality deer that you can actually hunt, you know, and being able to find one. I mean, <clears throat> there's lots of different ways to find them. You know, I follow up on every lead I hear about on a big deer, you know, I, I do a lot of glassing in the summer, you know, um, shed hunting new properties. I'm a real estate agent. So, you know, I'm looking at properties all the time. Um, you know, just any, any, um, any way that you can, you know, get a lead on a big deer, you got to follow up on it. You know, I like to focus on 
sanctuaries or areas that don't get a lot of hunting pressure or areas next to sanctuaries or good places. I mean, here in Ohio, I think just about any buck has got the genetics to be a trophy. He just needs time. So in order for him to get the time to grow to be, you know, Boone and Crocker or 200 inch deer, he's got to have, got to have a safe spot. So, you know, anywhere where you can um, get next to or on a spot that has minimal or no hunting pressure, you know, those are the spots I, I focus on, on trying to find a, a nude here per se, but yeah, I think probably the best times to really locate one is, is in the summer yeah. when those deer are, little bit more relaxed and out in the beans in the summer and tell you that though there's not um even a mature deer is not out there every night i've i've noticed that quite a bit in the last 10 years with more guys out scouting in the summer and pulling off the side of the road those big deer don't like to be seen even in july and august and there are certain nights that i focus on in the summer to uh increase my efforts and success on seeing those big deer out in the fields because I can't, I don't have the time, you know, to be out there every night in the summer like I used to be. And there are certain nights that are better than others for catching those big deer out in the fields. So are you looking at the same types of factors like uh, the moon and temperature and other weather, stuff like that, to impact deer movement that we look at in the season? Is that the same stuff you key on during the summer for your scouting? Yeah, exactly. Maybe not so much the wind in the summer, but definitely the weather and the moon. You know, when you get uh, the cool evenings or an evening when, you know, it rains and then the sun comes out and you got some moisture on those plants, you know, deer just come out of the woodwork. And then, of course, the moon. Um, I just, in the last 20 years, I've just seen it happen too many times when that moon's peaking in the evenings, the, the, especially the mature deer seem to show up early. And that's really what I've focused on for, man, 15, 20 years now for those bigger animals. Uh, trying to locate them in the summer. So those those deer though you find in the summer. Let's say you let's say you did this. You went out there. You scouted near some different little sanctuary areas. You found you found a buck you're really interested in. It's it's August though. You you glassed him in a bean field. He was out there every other day through all of August. But now it's early September. And maybe like did you go and you get you ask on every property nearby and maybe you got permission on one of them or two of them but now it's september and you're now you're trying to decide okay are they still there are they still around or did there was their fall range somewhere totally different like how do you try to verify that is it just what we talked about earlier did you go and put a camera out and now you're waiting to see if the camera starts popping in september or is there something else you do to try to verify is he here it's a shot in the dark when you catch one in the summer because you didn't you didn't have a chance to do your your postseason scouting to know where his core area is, so you don't know if he does vanish or he's going to relocate to. Really, the best thing you know for catching a big deer in the summer and you find one out in the field is just you know I call it um, uh, summer observation, and that's getting up in a tree or you know in a truck from a few hundred yards away and keeping an eye on the area with a spotting scope and and just not tipping that deer off because you bust one in the summer like that and pretty much most of the time he's going to be gone so you know get permission on any any adjacent spots that you can and um the last thing you want to do is 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 bust a deer like that so just keep an eye on him from a distance try to you know 
you know, through aerial photographs and, and some low impact scouting, you know, try to figure out what he's doing. But it's that's a completely different game, you know, when you find one in the summer when you got nothing other to go on other than just seeing him out in the field. You know, that could be that could be tough. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. So what about a situation where, like, what if this is actually happening right now? You just got permission in late August. It's a week later. It's early September. You've done the truck observations. You've sat on a hill with a spotter. Would you risk going in and doing a walkabout? still at this late in the game with your season opening four weeks from now or whatever? Or would you say, now I'm not even going to walk in there once. I'm just going to start hunting, run and gun, you know, once the season starts. I don't want to muck it up at all. How would you think about things one month out from the season now? Man, you just got to handle it carefully, and it's going to differ from, from, you know, one scenario to the next. But one deer comes to my mind, you know, I was chasing a a giant eight-point, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and he was camped out in a really small uh, soybean field, and it was just surrounded by a couple fence lines and a and a and a ditch, little wooded creek line. And I'd been up in a tree a couple times, and I, I saw him moving across the field, and uh, I knew the direction he was heading in the evenings, but I had no stands in there. So I waited till I got a good wind. I knew that that deer was not going to wind me out in that field during the day. Had a good rainy day, put some rubber boots on, got all cleaned up, put a stand on my back. And I basically walked a creek, creek line up to where I thought he was entering um, or exiting the field and hung a stand and killed him the second week of uh, 
season, um, you know, coming through the beans and and heading in that same direction. So uh, it's a matter of watching them, seeing what they're doing, not alerting them to what you're doing, and just really being smart about entering and exiting the property, making sure you don't tip them off, being really clean, and, um, you know, going in with the stand on your back, minimal disturbance, um, you know, and sometimes even a hang and hunt. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't have the opportunity to get it done beforehand, you know, you might have to put that stand and sticks on your back and go in and, and hang them and hunt the same, you know, same evening. Right. All right. Is, is any of this process different um, on properties, you know? So we, we started there and then we went to this new property example. But now let's go back to a property you do know. You've hunted a farm year after year after year. You get a big buck that shows up on your camera, on your mineral site on September 5th, let's say. Once your opening day is approaching, do you still try to get some nights to do some observations those last few days or the last week? Are you still trying to do that? Or do you know these spots well enough that it's just better not to risk it at all and, and just wait till that right time to hunt? You know, I love to have things set, preset, you know, weeks or months in advance, but that's not always the case with things changing, you know, with a food source change or hunting pressure or whatever, you know, stuff can change at the last minute or, you know, you might have a new buck show up on your property, but regardless, you got to be ready to, to change it up at, at a moment's notice. And even on a property that, you know, um, if, if a beer, big deer you're after, or a new one shows up in a specific spot during daylight making a mistake. I mean, you got to be ready to, to dive in and, and get it done. And one of the biggest deer I ever killed was a deer I knew about. And after all the post-season scouting and summer scouting I did on that property, I couldn't find that deer to save my life. And um, I kept doing my, you know, my distance scouting observation stands finally saw that deer show up mid-October one evening out in the middle of the field. Um, I was a few hundred yards away. He had no idea I was there. Um, sat that field for the next week. He didn't show back up. And then a uh, cornfield on on uh, the end of the property went down. He popped out one evening with the does, and I didn't have anything set up in there. So the next evening I went in with a stand of sticks on my back and hung in, uh, hung on the edge of the field and at dark, right before dark, he stood up about 80 yards away and ended up killing him. So, so you, you got to be ready. You got to be ready to, to, you know, hang and hunt or change things up at a moment's notice, even during season. Right. It seems like, like as much work as you do in the off season, being able to stay on top of the recent intel is just as important to flesh out that full oh, picture. Yeah. Um, Yep. So you mentioned observation stands. Um, so we're we're in the season now. Let's say we've done this postseason scouting. We monitor our areas in the summer, trying to glass fields. We had mineral sites out there that were getting pictures of bucks. Um, but now the season is opened. Do you? I know a lot of people go in there. And actually, I'm going to take what I just said back. Let's not talk about observation stands yet. Let's let's first talk about opening night. Do you? oftentimes go in for that opening night kill like a lot of people do or are you still playing it safe 
and, and trying to do user observation, watch, 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 and then zero in on them. Um, what does that first night look like for you? Because that can be tough to, do, to, to have the intel to dive right in and go for a kill a first night unless you can see them from the road or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I know what you're saying. And just because it's opening night doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go in you know, I'm not going to go in unless I've either seen that deer making a mistake in daylight or I've got a few things on my side that makes me believe that that deer is probably going to get up and move. And that's got to be, you know, good wind for him, um, a good weather condition to prompt that deer to get up and move or, or the moon. You know, and anybody that knows me knows I've followed the moon for a long time. And unless there's a couple of those factors you know, the wind, weather, and moon lining up, chances are I'm not going to go in unless those things are on my side because you just can't go in and not get it done early season because that deer is going to end up picking up on picking up on you. You see you, smell you, hear you. If you don't kill them, catch you coming out after dark. I mean, I want to kill that deer the first time that I go in, so I want to stack the deck in my favor and make sure I've got – um, uh, the the moon pushing him to get up early, some kind of weather condition that's pushing him to get up, um, the wind in his favor so he feels safe enough to move. You know, I want all that stuff lined up before I dive in. And, you know, I don't want anybody to, to misinterpret what I'm saying. You know, I pay attention to the moon, but if it's not a good moon evening, doesn't mean I'm not hunting. You know, if it's opening evening and I don't have any of that stuff going on, you know, I might be 300 yards away in, a, in another tree stand watching that area, or maybe on a different property with another deer. I'm still out hunting, but if I know where I need to be to kill a specific deer, I want as many of those things in my favor as I can before I'm going to take a chance to go in and try to kill that deer. Yeah. This, uh, this big Ohio buck that you've got on your radar this year, you said you've been hunting him for three or four years. Is that what you said? Yep. Yeah. Do you have, or can you, do you have a game plan? Like, do you already know in your head, I think I'm going to kill him in this spot and I'm just going to wait for the right time to do it? Or are you going to be trying to figure that out in the coming weeks? You know, having four years of history with him, I do have a couple spots that I've kind of, you know, set the trap and have them prepared and going to wait for, you know, specific scenarios before I'll go into those spots. But then also, you know, there's other places on the farm where I think I could kill them. Just all depends on the deer. You know, you do everything you can to prepare yourself and kind of, kind of try to predict what you think is going to happen. And sometimes that's the way it happens. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes, you know, the deer changes something up or does something completely different. I mean, the only thing definite about hunting these big deer is nothing's ever definite. So yeah. prepare for what you can and um, be ready to uh, do what you need to if things change up. Yeah. Walk me through this scenario then. Let's, if you don't mind, let's use that big Ohio buck as an example. Um, let's just say hypothetically that the first few days of the season go by and you don't have got, you don't have great conditions, so you're not really diving in there for him. It's, it's October now. How are you going about hunting him 
with, I, I know you've talked about observation stands in the past. Can you just expand on that a little bit, how you use observation stands to try to locate and, and zoom in on where these deer are and what they're doing? You know, it, it's a, it's a location or a tree stand that's outside of the game, you know, where I'm 99% sure the deer is not going to pick up on me coming in or leaving and where I, I've got really good visual um, opportunities to catch, you know, to get a look at them, moving, making a mistake, you know, watching them come through CRP, watching them go through the food plots. You know, I've got trail cameras on all those spots where I think I might get an opportunity to kill him. So not only am I going to be able to catch him coming through those areas on camera, but if he happens to skirt a camera, if I'm in an observation stand, I might be able to pick up on that. But, you know, I, I know how that deer moves through the farm where I've seen him in the past, you know, his history, um, is, you know, coming through the plots that I have set up the Whitetail Institute plots right on those red moon evenings. I mean, he's been really consistent on that. It's just a matter of where he happens to be bedding at and how he gets to those spots. This deer in particular beds in like six different places. So it's really hard to tell where he's going to be coming from. So that's another thing to try to key on, on these observation spots is, you know, where, where they're coming from and what they're doing. I mean, you're just looking for little pieces to the puzzle. Yeah. So you're, you're up in the tree, you see the buck. I'm, I'm imagining you see him. You're thinking in your, in your head, okay, where'd he come from? Where is he headed? But what are the other things that are running through your brain as you're trying to analyze? Like, you just had this observation. You just got this piece of the puzzle. What are all the things that you're trying to dissect from this piece of the puzzle? Because I imagine there's a lot of stuff you can glean from this 10-second observation, possibly. What's Adam Hayes trying to get out of that? It's really pretty simple. You know, how can you use that information to kill that deer immediately? You know, you get, that's when it's, t- when you see him doing something, see him making a mistake, you gotta, you gotta react and you gotta kill him immediately. You know, you, you don't wait for it to cool off. You don't go in and hang a stand and give it a couple of days. I mean, you gotta go in and get it done. So just trying to take that information and use it to figure out how to kill that deer as soon as possible because things are changing way too much. And you just never know what's going to happen. That's that's when you got to get aggressive and go in and get it done. If you observe a deer, then let's say it's October, you see a buck do something. Are you going to go immediately the very next sit, like the next morning? Or are you going to wait for the next evening? Or are you waiting for the next time the wind does the exact same thing? When you say go as soon as possible, what do you what exactly do you mean? As quickly as you can get in there without disturbing the deer. I don't do a lot of morning hunts in October. I like to know those deer are bedded when I go into the farm and, you know, beating a big duck, beating a big buck into his bed early season when he's on a strict feeding pattern is next to impossible early season. If I'm going to take a chance and I've tried a few evenings to kill him and I can't get it done and I know right where he's bedding and I've got a stand ready or I know the tray I need to be in for a morning hunt, I'm going to wait till I get a good moon just after daylight. Seems like that's your best chance to catch them coming back just a little bit late in the mornings during early season. 
But, um, yeah, I mean, you just can't go stumbling right in just because you see him do something and not put any thought into it. It ended up busting him and ruin, ruining the whole, you know, clue that you get, just got on what he's doing. I mean, you got to be smart about it. Can't tip him off. So you got to keep the wind in your face. You got to keep your keep your as much of your sin eliminated as you can, not leave anything behind. And, you know, you can't go in and clear out a tree like the utility company just came through. I mean, you just got to, you got to go, <laughs> you got to go in and do it smart. Yeah. Now, does that change at all though, during the rut? Because I always, I have this internal dilemma myself, right? If I see a buck do something on October 1st, I feel like there's a decent chance he might do the same thing October 2nd because it's still relatively early. He's in that somewhat of a betting to feed pattern that's going to be hopefully kind of consistent. But if I see a buck do something on November 2nd, hell, he might be two miles away the next day or he might have just been passing through here behind a doe. If you make an observation in early November during the heat of the rut, do you still make a move on that observation or are you going to say, eh, that was probably random? I mean, what do you got to lose, you know? At that point, if you see him do something one day, um, why not take a chance on him doing it again the next day? Yeah, so you go for it. You make you make that move. Yeah, you might as yeah you might as well go for it. If you got nothing else to go on, I mean, we're not recreating the wheel here. If you see a buck make a mistake, whether it's in October or November, you, you might as well try to capitalize it, capitalize yeah. on it. Okay. I definitely want to be there if he does it again, because if not, it's my mistake. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the worst feeling, too. If you sit there and you debate back and forth, I, I, I know because I've done this, I've debated back and forth, and I'm going to wait and see if he does it twice, and then he does it twice and I'm not there. <laughs> that'll mm-hmm. that'll stick with you. Um, all right, can you elaborate just a little bit on you know, how you're going in in season and doing these hanging hunts? Because you alluded to the fact that you have to be able to set up in a way that you're not going to spook that deer, of course. You can't clear out like a utility company. Um, But for those that aren't already doing this kind of hanging hunt often, it might be helpful just to hear your specific process. I mean, I'm kind of curious, like, do you go in there with three sticks or four? Do you trim any lanes at all? Or do you just sneak up as quiet and don't touch a thing? Um, Like, your entire process would be kind of interesting just to hear how you're actually getting set up uptight to one of these spots in season. Is it only for evening hunts? Or do you ever go in two hours before daylight and try to do something in the morning like that? That's tough to pull it off in the morning in the dark. Um, yeah, I don't do that very often at all. I'll tell you a trick I did learn, though, from um, Andre DeQuisto, the original owner of Lone Wolf Tree Stands. Mm-hmm. He'd go in and set up for an afternoon hunt. <clears throat> and then if it didn't pan out, he might dive right back into that same stand the next morning. And I found that, you know, carrying all that equipment in, you know, stand sticks, bow, plus all my camera equipment because I'm filming myself that it's a lot easier to um, go in and hunt in the evening and then just leave everything in the tree. I mean, my leave my bow hanging, leave my ozonics hanging, camera set up, everything's ready to go. Just climb up and you're all set. And I do that a lot for morning hunts. But um, it's difficult early season to do that. And you can't do that with a lot of um, with every tree stand on the market and I've used, you know, low wolf stuff forever. And 
you know, being able to go in and hang stands and a stick within a hundred yards of a 200 class whitetail and not tip him off um, to your presence is next to impossible. But uh, I've been able to do it with their stuff. So can't say enough about their equipment and, and the stealth and quietness of their products. But yeah, you know, putting that stuff on your back, not touching anything, being extremely scent free with, um, you know, from my gear to my clothes, to my body, you know, and then when you go into a spot like that, that you might not have been in before, you never know what's going to show up on your downwind side. So, you know, I'm not going into those spots without my ozonics. Um, you just got to cover all your bases and be prepared for everything. And I do minimal trimming. Um, I don't worry about taking five or six sticks in on a spot like that and being 30 foot up. I hardly ever hunt that high anymore. I'm more concerned about being in the right spot and having a little bit of breakup. And it seems like sometimes the higher you go in the tree, the more you actually stand out. So I'm, I'm just concerned about being in the right spot, not leaving any scent behind and um, being as quiet as possible. Do you have a, like a consistent process of how you get up in the tree quietly? Because like, this is something I've asked a handful of people about recently. I've just been trying to make my hang and hunt process more efficient and quieter and faster. And so I've started, um, you know, using a couple different gear ties to tie two of the sticks to my hip. So I put one stick on the tree, I climb up, I hang, pull the one stick off of my hip, put on the next one, climb up, pull the other one off my hip, climb up. And then I have a lineman's or I've got a tow rope down to my bow and a tow rope down to my stand or platform. And once I get up to my top position, then I already have those ropes on my hips. and I just pull each one up. I don't have to go up and down at all. Um, that's something that I've just been slowly kind of working on to try to make it more efficient. Do you, do you have a system in place? I've tried, I've tried, I've tried that and I haven't found anything that works for me. No, it's definitely, it tell definitely you though, is a tricky. It, does, it makes a big difference. Yeah. It makes a big difference if you can um, obviously undo all your straps before you climb up into the tree. So you're not messing around with all that stuff. And I use, you know, I use that sound barrier tape and a lot of camo hockey tape, on all my, you know, buckles and straps and stands. I mean, I, I pretty much eliminate any metal to metal contact on everything so that you know, it only, it only takes one little, you know, ting from a buckle hitting your stand to tip a big deer off that might be bedded close by. So, I mean, you, you got to cover all your bases and not leave anything to chance, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I love to have it a tree with a lot of limbs so I can hang my sticks on the limbs as I'm going up. Okay. So I have to keep climbing up back up and down, up and down, but I haven't been able to come across anything that really works good for climbing up and keeping all your sticks on you. Yeah. You know, trying to hang on to the tree and grab grab your sticks. It's just yeah, it's it's tough. It's a process. What about it is what about this scenario? Um Let's say you're going to go in to do a hang and hunt. Maybe you saw a buck the night before, or maybe you just are, you know, you want to head to a spot. You're walking in and as you're walking in, you see some great sign, fresh sign, 
that looks like it just happened. Maybe maybe it's a huge rub that just got tore up a couple day or just a couple hours ago or last night or something. You see something that catches your eye. Um, I'm curious. Would you say I need to hunt this right now and change your plan and hunt that fresh hot sign right right now, or would you say, well, I'm gonna put that away in the filing cabinet, keep that as some intel, but I'm going to stick with my plan. It just depends on the situation. And, you know, like I said, I do everything I can to hunt the freshest sign. So you definitely got to take it into consideration, but you got to be able to read the, read the area and, you know, read the deer and what he's doing and why he did it, which direction he's coming from. And, and, um, just so many things come into play and being able to read it and, and look at the big picture and see what's going on. I mean, you know, you love to be able to set up over top of a, you know, a freshly steaming scrape or, you know, a rub that just reeks because it just got shredded by a big deer and be right on top of it. But it's really about, you know, looking at the big picture and why it happened and why it's right there and, you know, the best, best way to approach it. So, tough to kind of wrap all that up in one sentence and say what to do <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's the truth um well then, then explain this to me what would it take like can you imagine a scenario like that that would force you to hunt right then um like is there is there one specific instance like i, I might be able to imagine in my head if i didn't have a really great game plan for the night. I didn't see a buck the night before, but I knew I wanted to try a new spot. And I'm hiking into that new spot, and I see this, like you just described, I see this huge tore-up rub, and it's it's stinky, and it, it's obviously, it wasn't there yesterday maybe, so I know it happened between last night's walk out and this afternoon walking in. And I also know that I'm in uh, a typical transition area, and the wind's right for me to hunt you know, if a buck were coming out of the bedding area, I was heading towards, he might pass through this spot. That scenario maybe to me would say, okay, you know what? This is a spot a mature buck might likely come through. And it looks like there was a buck that just came through here last night doing that very thing. This seems like a good thing to set up on right now. Um, is that the kind of scenario that you might jump on that hot side and right away? Or what's, what's a different scenario maybe that, that would cause you to hit it immediately in that way? You know, it's tough just going by sign because you don't know if it was made in the middle of the night, you know? So what happens if you find that fresh hot sign and you set up on it, but everything's not lining up for that deer to move during daylight? So you hunt there, you don't see him, you get down after dark and you, you bump him going out because he's still moving after dark. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just so many different scenarios to, to think about, but I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to go with your gut and if it seems like a good thing and, and fresh sign and a great evening and you got to stand on your back. Why not take a crack at it? Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to compartmentalize, you know, something like that and say, this is exactly what you got to do. Sometimes you just got to go with your gut instincts and do what you think's right. But the main thing I'm looking for is, is other than sign is to catch a mature deer doing something during daylight. Cause I don't care what you say. There's just no way to kill a big deer unless he's moving during daylight. Sounds oversimplified, but that's really what it's all about. So I do everything I can to catch the big deer moving during daylight, whether it's seating from an observation stand 
catching a picture of him doing it, or like I said, just lining up multiple factors that's going to put everything in that deer's favor to get him up moving early. You know, because we're trying to predict what he's going to do before he does it. You know, and if you got a good wind for him, got a good moon, it's pushing him up, and it's you know, it's a it's mother nature. You know, it's an instinctive urge for him to get up and feed. And then you've got a weather pattern that's, you know, high barometric pressure or a cold front or something that's going to push him to feed. I mean, those are things I'm, I'm trying to line up. If I'm just going in blind, hoping that I'm going to catch a big deer making a mistake, I want those things in my favor. Yeah. Do you ever find a situation where you don't get eyes on a mature buck? Like you don't have any observation sightings of a deer you want to shoot. You don't have any daylight trail camera sightings of a buck you want to hunt. And you find yourself in a position where you have to in season actually go walk and look for a sign to help put you in the right position. Or is it always, is there always going to be one of those other pieces of Intel? So you don't need to actually do a walkabout of any kind. Yeah. I've been there before. The last thing you want to do is spend, you know, a week or two in October in a completely different spot. And if you got nothing to go on, no pictures, no sign, I mean, what are you going to do? Climb up in a tree and just hope something shows up. I mean, you got to go find them. So worst case scenario, if you got nothing to go on and it's time to get the wind in your face and uh, stand on your back and start, you know, start uh, cruising and looking, looking for something to hunt. I mean, you don't want to spend a couple of the best weeks of the season in the completely wrong spot. Yeah. So uh, I'm not one of those guys that's just going to climb up in a tree and just hope something shows up just based on the fact that I, there's a big deer in the area. You know, you got to have something to go by. And if I don't have anything to go by, I'm going to go find it. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood 
in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We talked about rubs already um, and a little bit about scrapes, but what about tracks? How much do you pay attention to trying to find a big buck track? And and does that ever kind of factor into your decisions or into your scouting and, and use that as a, as a piece of the puzzle at all? Very seldom, to be honest. I mean, I've heard so many different explanations of tracks and track sizes and the dew claws and if they're spread apart and how to tell a buck from a doe. And I mean, you know, see a big deer track means there was a big deer there. I mean, I just, I don't, I've never put a whole lot into, uh, into tracks to be honest. Okay. Well, scrapes though, we, we talked just a little bit about it, but what kind of scrape in season would you need to see to get excited? Um, you know, a lot of people see these field edge scrapes, but then there's the talk that that's probably nighttime. So then some people prefer scrapes in other locations. Um, whoa, where's your head on scrapes when you're actually out there during hunting season? And how's that factor into things? You know, it really doesn't matter what type of sign it is. If it's, you know, tracks and trails, rubs, scrapes, whatever it is, you want something that's fresh. But the the key that I'm looking for is a mature animal making that sign during daylight. So I'm either going to have a trail camera on a trail, on a scrape, on a rub, get a look at that deer, see what, what it is and when he's doing it before I'm typically before I'm going to hunt it. Okay. You know, I want some documentation. I'm going to not going to camp out on a rub that a big deer I'm after might not have even made or ever visited, you know? Do you do you look at a daylight trail camera picture the same as a daylight observation? So we talked about the fact that if you saw a shooter buck in daylight moving, you would go in there and hunt him as soon as you possibly could. Would you do the same thing mm-hmm. with a camera? If you got a daylight picture, you're moving yeah. in and hunting that camera location as soon as possible? Yep. Yep. He's still moving during daylight. That's the main thing. Yep. Where, where where do your cameras typically go in season? I'm I'm guessing that you switch them from your summer locations, but is that is that true? If so, how? I've got them monitoring those mineral sites back in the cover. I've got them on the um, food plots. I've got them on the rub lines. I mean, anywhere anywhere where I think I'm going to get a picture of that deer moving through an area that's going to help me know where he's at and when he's there. Okay. It's all about, you know, the, the particular animal and where he's at and where I think I need to be to kill him. Yep. You know, I have a lot of lot of cameras set close to tree stands because I want to know when he's passing my tree stand in daylight. So you need to have a camera close to that stand on the trail. Do you do anything to try to get better camera pictures or do you place any kind of attract in, in front of most of your spots to try to get them to stop there or, or use licking branches or, or anything at all on those typical camera sets? I'll use some scent occasionally to get them to stop. Um, like I said, I do have a lot of them on mineral sites, so they're going to be stopping anyway. Um, or putting them on, you know, like a rub or a scrape. But you do want to put it somewhere where you got a pretty good chance of that deer stopping, yeah. 
you don't want to put them perpendicular to your trail because um, I think you end up missing, you know, pictures of deer coming through. You want to catch them coming towards the camera, going away from it instead of just, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Passing by perpendicularly. Yeah. yeah. You want to get a little bit of an angle so they're not just going to flash in and out of it immediately. Right. Yep. How many cameras are you typically running or how many do you think, like, I guess let me rephrase the question. A lot of people wonder how many cameras they might need to effectively cover a certain area. So maybe let's, let's, let's start small. Let's say like per 40 acres. If we think that maybe that's like a small property, a lot of people maybe can access. How many cameras per 40 acres on average do you think would be good to get a, a solid idea of what's out there? Is it one camera is it? I mean, obviously, it depends on how many you can afford and how many. You it have. might. It might be one. It might be. Yeah, it might be one. It might be twenty. It depends on the property. You know, just being able to read the property and know what's going on and how the deer use it. I mean, sometimes you can um, know if a deer is coming in and out of a property with one camera. Sometimes it takes multiple. You know, I'm hunting 250 acres where that big deer is at, and I think we got 15 cameras on there. But I want to know you know, exactly when that deer comes in and off the property and where he's at. And I've got, you know, I've got it wired for sound. So it's just, it's just all about being able to read the property. And, you know, if if you've got one specific area where the deer come in and out, it might only take one camera. Right. Right. That scenario with that big buck, again, that we've been talking about, how do you think it's going to play out? Like, I'm curious to hear if you, if someone put a gun to your head and said, Adam, you're going to kill that big buck. We think you're going to kill that big buck this year, but we, we want you to guess the scenario of how it's going to happen. Um, You're forced to pick the spot you're going to hunt. You're forced to make a guess on where he's bedded and where he's coming to. You're forced to pick the night or the day or the condition it's going to happen. Um, Walk me through your very best guess of how it's going to come together and what you would have done to make that happen. I've got three spots in particular that I have ready for that deer where I think I'm going to, if I get a crack at him and an opportunity to kill him in October, it's going to be in one of those three spots. It's going to be on an evening where, you know, he's got a good wind in his favor to feel comfortable enough to get up and move. Um, that deer has been notorious for showing up in my food plots on the red moon evenings from the moon guide. So it's going to be on a, a red moon evening. And, um, yeah, the knowing when those days hit this month, um, going to have three opportunities in October this year, beginning of the month, middle of the month and the end of the month. And I think one of those three times is, is probably when it's going to happen if it happens. And those those red moon days, just for those, if they if they if you're not familiar with the red moon theory, we talked about it quite a lot in our other episode we did together. So definitely listen to that whole one. But can you give us just the the quick cliff notes um, by by what that means and how you're looking at that? Just for those that aren't familiar. Yeah, so I've been using the moon guide for 20 years, and it's just really about, it has nothing to do with the phase of the moon. It's about the position of the moon in the sky and the gravitational pull and how that affects mature deer to move because you only have 
a handful of days each month when that moon is peaking at prime time in the evenings. You know, and it's just another thing added to the wind and the weather to push that deer to get up and move during daylight when he's normally not going to do that. So those are the evenings I focus on. And like I said, anytime you have multiple factors like the wind and the moon, the weather and the moon, or all three, you know, it's about stacking a deck in your favor. It's, you know, putting everything in your favor that, that you can do. And, you know, after using that moon guide for 20 years, I've just seen it happen and have killed too many big deer that just normally don't move during daylight, but you killed them right when that moon peaked in the evening. You know, it's, it's not a gimmick. I mean, it's mother nature. I didn't invent the moon, you know, <laughs> the moon, the moon and the gravitational pull is strong enough to move the oceans, the biggest mass on this planet. You cannot tell me that that does not affect animals and fish to feed. I mean, I don't, I don't think we've even really scratched the surface on how the moon affects animals and people and, and everything on this earth. But, you know, I, I've read all the research. I've heard all the guys talk about the moon. Dad doesn't support it affecting deer. I'm just not buying it. Not until somebody goes out and radio collars a bunch of mature deer and falls them during season and proves to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that it doesn't affect them. Because I'm going by what I've seen in the last 20 years, and I've killed a lot of big deer focusing on a lot of scouting, knowing my areas, and waiting until the wind, weather, and the moon is on my side. And most of the time, I'm able to go in the first time and kill them if I can wait for that stuff to line up. So if somebody wants to argue with me on, on a better, on a, on a better regimen, you know, for killing big deer, I'm all ears, but I'm just going by what's worked for me. And that's, that's worked for 20 years. And that's what I focus on. Yeah. Well, I can't, I can't argue with it. I know that I've seen a lot of the same research that has shown what you said, that the moon doesn't have a significant statistically significant impact according to some of these studies and the same things though have said that cold fronts don't impact deer movement and other things like that that so many of us can point to as as there being changes so i've always said that it just seems like what they're measuring maybe is not the same things that we care about as hunters so total movement over a 24-hour period maybe it's not any different but I don't care about total movement over a 24-hour period. I care about is a buck over four and a half years old going to walk this extra 50 yards 10 minutes earlier. And if he's going to do that, that Mm -hmm. makes all the difference in the world for me as a hunter. Maybe that's not significant enough to show up in these large-scale studies, but that's the kind of thing that can make a difference to a hunt. So I've always thought, I feel like there's something like being lost in translation there. Um, that would be really yeah. interesting to see if we could somehow measure what the hunter would uh, be impacted by. That'd be really interesting to me. So I'm, I'm, I've always been game to pay attention to all of it. And like you said, I don't know how important any one of these individual factors is, but I'm going to stack every one that I can together because you need every little bit, every odd possible in your favor because there's, there's already so many things out of your control. Why not take advantage of those things that you can? Exactly. And I'll tell you a great way to measure it. I see it happen every year. You watch social media in October, and every time that red moon peaks, there will be guys posting pictures of big deer that they're killing right on the red moon, regardless if they follow the moon or use the moon guide. 
it happens every year. Now it's not a hundred percent, you know, guys kill big deer on days that aren't good, you know, a good moon. I mean, nothing's a hundred percent, but every time that red moon hits, I guarantee you, you'll see a spike of big deer hitting the ground right on those red moon days. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think last year wasn't one of the red moon, uh, time periods that like October 24th, 25th, 26th, somewhere in that ballpark was, is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Yep. Cause I remember, I remember a whole lot of deer got killed right around that time period. And I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, it lined up with those red moon dates. And that was something that a couple of us were discussing as, it's pretty interesting to see that there was this very, very high peak, um, like more noticeable than usual even. So it's interesting. It's definitely something I like to pay attention to. And um, I'm intrigued. Why why wouldn't you pay pay attention to it? Guys pay attention to the weather and their nature, but not the moon. I mean, what's the difference? You know, the the moon is a satellite for earth and affects this earth in so many different ways. Why would you, why would you focus and be, you know, have blinders on to just concentrate on weather and then throw the moon out the window. That makes no sense to me. Yeah. I'll take it all. I'll take it all. Yeah. Why not stack the deck in your favor? Yeah. So, so speaking of, of stacking the deck, I want to dive a little further into your scenario though. So we're waiting till one of these ideal sets of conditions, hopefully a red moon and good weather or the moon and the wind or whatever it might be. Um, but you've got three different spots you think it could happen. Could you describe one of these just to help us understand like what kind of setup you have in mind to kill a big buck? Um, like that kind of example I think would be really helpful for people. Yeah, so I think this deer um, normally mostly beds in two places. One is right behind the, the farmhouse actually in an overgrown, you know, overgrown backyard basically, or in a CRP field up close to the road along a little creek bed. And that, you know, it's on the most downwind side of the farm, which is very typical for a mature deer. In Ohio, we normally have a southwest wind, and nine times out of ten, a mature buck's going to live on the most northeastern part of the farm. So whenever he gets up, you know, he's mainly going to be on the most downwind side of the property and can go wherever he wants to with the wind in his face. And that's what this deer is doing. And there's you know, there's a cornfield he could hit up close to the road, which I saw him do last year. I've got a secluded, two secluded um, uh, food plots, the back end of the CRP that he hits, and then another uh, cornfield corner in the back of the property that he hits. So in his travel pattern right through the middle of that block, he can hit, you know, any one of those four spots. You know, I've got stands in all four of those spots ready to go. You know, when when he shows up normally in, in any of those spots, it's always in, in the same spot. So, I mean, I've got everything um, prepared. I know how to get in and out of the farm without tipping that deer off, which, you know, was a big learning experience for me because that deer bedded in so many places. And most of the time he was bedded close to the road and knew exactly when I was there and I couldn't figure it out. You know, he'd show up for a day or two on camera during daylight, and I'd go down and try to hunt him, and he disappeared. That deer knew when I was there. He was watching me come in and out. You know, 
that deer, I parked within 10 yards of that deer one time. Didn't even know he was there until I got up on my, got up on my ranger to pull it off the trailer. And he jumped up in the middle of the guy's backyard, you know, in in six foot tall grass. I mean, so it's been a learning experience, but. So what do you have to do to adjust that, uh, that access point? Do you just find a totally different side of the farm you can come in on or, or what have you done now? Yeah, I just had to come in from a completely different spot on the farm, not the not the typical spot where I come in. You know, I can't park at the house. I can't park at the pull-off where I normally come in. I I basically got to park on right off the road and go down the road and come in around the backside on the quiet cat and complete, do a complete loop around the farm so that deer doesn't know I'm there. Wow. What about a scenario like this where and then this is a, maybe a little bit of a, a stretch from the theme of locating deer but bear with me here you're out there hunting and you have you, you don't have anything to work with let's say or at least nothing recent do you ever go to the idea of blind calling to try to locate a deer Will you ever be in a situation where like, damn it, I just got to start rattling a lot and try to pull something in or grunt because nothing's showing up um, and I need to force the issue? And I know this is time of year dependent, um, but how often does that ever factor into your, your thought process? I'll do blind calling in November, but I really don't like to do it earlier when I'm after a specific deer because I think calling success really depends on your setup, you know? Can you elaborate on that? Mature deer is gonna, yeah, mature deer is gonna try to get downwind of you or come in from downwind of you when you're calling. And my setups, I like to put myself in a spot where either a big deer can't get downwind of me, or if he tries to, my location um, that I'm set up in forces him within bow range to try and get downwind of me. I mean, it's. I think it's deadly to be set up a early season within earshot of a big in his bed and do a little light calling um, while he's still laying there to give him something to think about and a direction to head once he gets up. You know, I think there's a little competition in his area and something's going on and he needs to get up and, and check it out and investigate. But, um, yeah, it's tough to be successful on blind calling. But, I mean, in November, you know, it's all about time in the stand and, bucks are cruising you never know when one might just be just out of eyesight that uh hears your calling and responds to it so it all of a sudden uh, can come together about, in this kind of scenario all yeah. about the scenario yep yeah do you ever get to the point where you're in season and you have to rewind all the way to the tactics you were using in the summer so by that, I mean, you get to the point where you have to pull out of your hunting locations completely and get back on the road and glass fields from the road again to try to find a buck. Um, like in November or late season, maybe deer have all shifted again and you're trying to relocate where these bucks are feeding. Do you ever go to that extreme? Yeah, sometimes you have to if they disappear or buck you're after got killed or, I mean, gosh, there's hundreds of different scenarios where things change up and you got to change your tactics and go back to square one. But, um, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time to get it done. So you got to do whatever, whatever it takes during season. Yeah. I liked what you said earlier that, uh, that sometimes, or, or 
correct, maybe clarify this, but I think you said something along the lines of you scout more than you hunt, even during the season. Mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate as far as spending those times observing from a distance or doing different things um, to just narrow your hunts down? I, I've been slowly moving more and more that direction that I'd rather have a lot of information that leads me to a few really, really good sits. I'd rather have that than a bunch of sits that are just kind of willy-nilly. Yeah. Yeah, I read um, <clears throat> read a story by Miles Keller years ago that talked about hunting from the outside in and what his whole thought process was is he would start from the you know the outskirts of a buck's territory and just keep classing and monitoring the area from a distance and just methodically keep moving in closer and closer and closer until he knew the exact tree he needed to be in and the exact wind the deer needed and you know really kind of adapted that over the years into what I do. And, you know, it's, it's all about hunting and hunting and hunting and hunting scouting for that, you know, that one spot to kill them, you know? So I, I really think it is a lot more scouting. When I say hunting and scouting, kind of, kind of talking about the same thing mm-hmm. until you find that kill spot, you're actually hunting for that kill spot. I guess is a good way to describe it. Yeah. You're hunting for that, you know, special spot, that weak spot or that place, that a spot where you can kill a deer. So I guess that's really the best way to describe it is I'm constantly hunting and scouting for that perfect spot to kill the deer that I'm after. Yeah. Cause once you find it, you know, once you find where you need to be and you wait for everything to line up, you go in and kill them. How, how often how often when you have that situation, like what are you, what kind of confidence level do you have at this point in your hunting career and journey? What percent chance do you feel like when you, when you find a spot like this that you feel good about and the conditions line up and you're going for your first sit, is it like a 50, 50 proposition for you? Do you, I mean, I know we're just ballparking here, but what do you usually feel like? Do you, are you so confident you've got this narrowed down so much that seven times out of 10, you're getting it done now? Nine times out of ten. Wow. That's that's what it's been with all my biggest bucks. So what about the if you do if you do if you do all the scouting to find the right spot and you can be patient enough to wait for everything to line up and you haven't uh, alerted that deer to your presence and he's still moving on his natural pattern and he's got all those you know natural instinctive pushes to get him up moving. I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen Yeah, if you do everything right. So, so since we talked last time on the podcast, you killed your fourth 200 inch plus deer. And that buck, as I understand it, there was a little bit of this kind of scenario that we've been discussing. It took some, some work in to locate him with, with cameras and then some, some observation type stuff. Can you walk through that example, how you located that buck, how you narrowed down where the spot was and where the weak spot was and how you ultimately killed him? Could you kind of walk through that? Well, it was in Kansas. It was in an area I was familiar with, but I hadn't hunted that specific farm yet, but we had a camera in there on the middle of the property. And that deer just showed up out of nowhere, third week of October, middle of the night. 
didn't figure he was living on the farm. The farm was located in the middle of a block, about two miles long and a mile wide. So I had a pretty good idea he was living on that block, but not on the farm. But he was coming through there just keeping tabs on does. You know, we had uh, um, food out in front of the camera, obviously, to attract deer there to get pictures of them. So I was a couple of weeks away from the next red moon. And with him moving in the middle of the night, I wasn't in a rush to run right out there, although I knew it was a you know, 220-inch giant. So just kept uh, kept monitoring the camera, obviously a wireless camera out there, so I knew what was going on. Started studying, really studying the aerials of the photo of the property, and there was really only a couple spots where I thought a deer like that would be coming in and out of the farm, so I knew what I needed to focus on when I got out there and where I wanted to look, so... The uh, moon was supposed to peak sometime the end of the first week of November. I believe I headed out there on Halloween day, full day drive. Deer was starting to move a little bit closer to daylight, but still, you know, after dark, but not middle of the night, getting closer to evening. Got out there. It was super hot. New deer weren't going to be moving much. I went into the two spots actually the two back corners of the farm that look like typical areas where deer would come in and out. Um, the camera was set up in the middle of the farm, so I didn't know where exactly he was coming in and out, but the one spot really looked to me like it was the spot. I mean, it was back corner, very secluded, really low, really, really secluded, um, Creek running through there, multiple fence lines crossing. I mean, just like a, just like a hub of activity deer could come from any direction. And the key to it was there was a really deep Creek bed that ran the distance of the property right back to that corner. So I could literally jump down in this Creek that was like 10 foot deep, but it only had a couple inches of water and get right into that corner without making any noise, without disturbing anything. I really figured that was my best chance of killing that deer in that corner. So got in there, hung a stand, um, really didn't know, you know, like I said, what direction he was coming from, cause they could come from so many different directions. So I really had to rely on being clean and, um, counting on the ozonics to cover, you know, cover my downwind side. And it was one of those spots where, you know, you could get in and out of there day after day and not really worry about spooking anything. So I think I hunted at that spot three or four times that week. I did hunt the other corner a couple times, but I just wasn't feeling it over there. Um, I knew my chances were going to get better later into the week as the moon got closer and closer to prime time. It didn't really cool off a whole lot. I think it was like 75 degrees on, on that Saturday when I finally killed him, but it was an hour and a half before dark, really hot wasn't even expecting anything to be up and moving yet. And that deer shows up in the broad daylight on my downwind side, of course. Thank God the Ozonix was running. And, you know, I killed the biggest deer of my life when there was no rhyme or reason for that deer to be up and moving that early on the, I think, 5th or 6th of November. You know, he's just up moving, doing his thing, moving into the wind, 
had the wind in his favor. The moon was peaking that evening. And um, it was just one of those things where you, you read the sign, you just kind of look at the big picture, what's a big deer need to do to move through this property and feel comfortable enough to move um, during daylight. And, uh, and I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, that's, that's just the way that it happened. And um, yeah, ended up killing the biggest deer of my life. That's amazing. Now you bring up something that I think is worth expanding on, which is, um, you know, this buck did what he thought he had to do to, to be safe or something along those lines. And this brings to mind an idea that we, we hear occasionally that, you know, a mature buck is almost a different animal completely than all the other deer out there. And one of the things that helped me a lot at some point in my deer hunting journey was I used to just be like trying to hunt deer. And I would set up in spots where I could see a bunch of deer, but you were never actually getting a shot at a mature deer. Once you realize you have to switch and start hunting this totally different animal, then you have to think about things in a different way and you start hunting different places or hunting closer to these places, but in a different kind of way. Um, so all that is to say, what are some of the other things you found that a mature buck does differently or that you're thinking about when trying to guess where he's going to move or how he's going to move. You talked about this area being a hub and all these things going for it. I imagine you were seeing some of these things and you thought to yourself, because of this, or because I know a mature buck likes this kind of thing, or a mature buck tends to move in this kind of way, this is the spot. Are there any things like that that you can, that you can speak to that come to mind that are unique to how a mature buck travels or thinks or acts? The only thing I really think that is unique about it is the majority of the deer and the, and they are a different creature and the majority of the deer in the deer herd are going to be doing the same things that he's doing. They're just doing it more consistently during daylight and a big old mature buck is still doing the same thing. He's just doing it on very specific days during daylight. Those big deer just don't make mistakes and they just don't move that much during daylight or, or they die. You know, they've learned what they need to do to survive. And the unique thing about it is when they do it, you know, they do it for very specific reasons during daylight. And then, you know, I don't think it's rocket science. And I don't think, you know, a 200-inch animal is any different than a mature 150. But I do think a mature animal that's learned the game of survival is doing things differently just from the sole reason that his main goal is to survive and he's not going to make any mistakes. So you've got to really hone in on not only what he's doing, but when he's doing it, it's all about timing. The timing, the timing is really the key to it. When is that deer going to do it during daylight so you can kill him and not tipping him off before you do it? Yeah. Yeah, getting those high-quality hunts, getting a couple high-quality hunts just seems to be so much more important than a, than a whole bunch of credit. It's all about, yeah, it's all about quality over quantity, hunting smarter, not harder. Yep. November is when you want to hunt harder. You know, there's guys that they're hunting, and then there's guys that hunt specific deer. When you're hunting a specific deer, you've got to hunt smarter, not harder. Yeah. 
Is there is there anything that we've missed when it comes to this specific idea of of locating them, of zeroing in on them? Um, I feel we covered a whole lot of different facets of it, but is there anything that's still jumping around your mind that you think that'd be horrible if we left it out before shutting things down here? I don't know, man. You've been pretty thorough on picking <laughs> my brain today. I try. I don't know that we've missed anything. Okay. Well, in that case, um, you know, where where can folks find a couple of things? Because you're doing a lot of really interesting things out there in the deer hunting world. You're producing content. You're help putting out the moon guide out there in new ways. Where can people find everything that you've got out there? Oh, Team 200 is everything uh, content-wise that we're doing. 200inch.com is the website for the show. You can catch it on Waypoint TV, which is a free app. Runs on the Pursuit channel. You know, we've got a lot of great content on the show. And then as far as the Moon Guide goes, moonguide.com. We just launched a new app. Um, you can get it on the Apple Store or Google Play, searching Deer Hunters Moon Guide. Um you know, and you can get either of them from, from the, from the website. So. Perfect. And then of course, social media, the team 200 TV, Facebook page and moon guide, Facebook page. So. Awesome. Well, I just got to uh, check out the moon guide app and that's really nice having that right there on your phone. There easily shows the, the moon rise, set and rise and set times, the sun rise and set times. Uh, I like the fact that you guys then call out the peak activity times and where to focus. So for anyone that's intrigued by the moon theories, if you want to learn more about that, I know, Adam, you've got a whole lot of different videos and you talk about it in your, in your TV show, but we also dove into it in a lot of detail on that previous podcast, episode two. And, um, uh, it's it's very interesting, intriguing, and I definitely follow along and um, I, I keep it I keep it as one of those tools that can help guide me when I need to know a little bit. Just like you said, all the little odds you can stack in your favor. And when you're trying to pick that right time, I'm going to consider every factor. So it's something I'm looking at, and I, yeah, I, I appreciate it. So thank no you, problem, man. Glad to help. I think uh, I think a lot of folks are going to learn something from this today. And um, uh, the only downside is that there's probably going to be more big deer hitting the ground, which means fewer for you and me in the future. But uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, sharing all your experience, Adam. No problem, man. Appreciate you having me on the show again. All right. And uh, let's talk sooner than four years uh, from now, okay? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Sounds good. All right. Good luck hunting the rest of the season. You too, man. Thank you. And that will do it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this one. Lots of great info and ideas from Adam. And man, if you're not already hunting, it is almost here. So get ready, get excited. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. 
Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.